Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Thursday, May the uh, 17th, 2012. And I don't know how we got to Thursday so fast. Maybe because I took Monday off, but I feel like I've been working in the... Uh, in the landscape on my property, all we kind of motivated by the Holzer seminar. I know some of the times I was up there that I wasn't exactly happy with what was going on. I'm like, I could be doing stuff on my own property, and I've got some beds that aren't established yet, even though they're hugel beds that needed to be irrigated, and some of my plants are going to die before I get back. And so I've just been, uh, you know, working my butt off. And uh, it seemed like today should be like Wednesday. And it's Thursday, and I'm shocked. But uh, that means Friday is tomorrow, and we'll have the uh, listener call show. That'll be fun. I have a great interview to, uh, to schedule today that you'll hear on Tuesday uh, with a guy named Caleb. And Caleb is an awesome guy. So I'll start telling you kind of shows that are coming up again. I think a lot of people like to hear that. And he's from Lone Star Medics. They do all kinds of cool things to, uh, to help people that are in bad situations due to uh, medical uh, conditions, including flying around on helicopters. He's going to be here to talk to us about the Lone Star Medics course. So those of you who have been asking for more uh, material like we had with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and uh, medical uh, treatment and collapse medicine and things like that, you're going to get what you're looking for on Tuesday. Monday, of course, will be the return of the listener feedback show with email sent in. So those are the next few days' agenda. Today's show, we're going to talk about, guess what, water. Water in the landscape, just like I promised earlier in the week. I said I'd get to it. Uh, due to the way I conducted an interview this week, I ended up with a hole in the schedule, and I thought this would be a great day to do this. It's what's heavily on my mind as I look for a new piece of property in East Texas. It's what's heavily on my mind every day on my property here, and it's one of the things that makes my property here Suboptimum. Uh, there's uh, because of where the house is located, the property, the way it is, the the uh, the, the landscape. Uh, it's it's really one of the bigger challenges that I have where I'm at, especially in the summer. So we're going to be talking about uh, water today and a new look at it, uh, a way of looking at it that I've probably never covered before. Most of what I've covered today, I've covered. I'm going to cover today. I've covered in passing as pieces of other shows. Uh, like swales and earthworms and things like that. But I'm going to put them together today, all relating to water, so that you can take all of these tools that I'm going to give you today, and whether you're in a little yard in the suburbs or you have a great big piece of property out on a farm, in anything in between, you can pick the ones that will work for you and design them. I'm not going to talk, say, like, okay, here's the recipe to build a dam. Here's the recipe to build a swale. I'm going to tell you what they are, how they work, how you build them in the basic format, what they do, what the rules of water are, what some of the constants are, and then you're going to be able to take those things and use them to design your own system because no one can tell you how to design your system. Just like no one can tell you how to design your survival plan, your preparedness plan. You have to take all the pieces that are, let's say, in the wardrobe and assemble them together in the way that suits you. You dress your landscape your way. That's what I want to do today. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical, veteran-owned, veteran-operated, called Sawtooth because they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. 
Check them out today. Everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Got my tactical sporks made out of titanium. They're awesome. One in each bug out bag. One for me and one for the wife. Uh, really cool tools. Uh, Magpul magazines. I've been asked several times what my favorite magazine is for the uh, AR platform. Magpul. Always Magpul. So much better than the USGI. Anything made out of metal. Anything else I've ever had my hands on. Reliable, dependable, damn right indestructible. James Jaeger had one accidentally shot on a live fire course. They taped it up. They put rounds in it. They fired it. It still worked. Uh, that's You'll find stuff like that at Sawtooth Tactical. And because it's run, owned, and operated by veterans, you're going to get the kind of service you would expect from any company that we would ever allow to advertise on the show, and that is exceptional. Uh, next up today, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can you ask for from a company? Then they say, here's our company's name, this is what we do, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it right every time. That's what you get from ready-made resources. All of the resources for your prepping that you need from hunting, tactical, gardening, food storage, 12-volt stuff for your solar and wind, you name it, if you can think of it. If you need it for your prepping, you will probably find it at ready-made resources. You are definitely going to find it at a great price. And I promise you, if you order from them, you are going to get exceptional service. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. Remember, the best way to find ready-made resources, Sawtooth Tactical, and all of our sponsors, go to our site first, TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You know you're dealing with the real company that we've uh, accepted as a sponsor and not a cheap imitator. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find all of that at our website, TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions that are not just AOCS currency, denomination 2 units. They're also a great, inexpensive way to share messages like the Survival Podcast, like the real truth about money, like the Second Amendment, like Ron and Rand Paul, and many other things you can find there. Check them out today at tspcopper.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get a discounts from 32 supporting vendors, and I'm working on more of them all the time. You get some videos that are available nowhere else. How about $150 worth of free ebooks for a $50 a year membership the day you sign up? Uh, how about the fact that we will also provide you downloads of all the old editions of the show and convenient zip files? How about you're supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode? If you listen every day and you like the show and you think it's worth two dimes a day, Consider joining the MSB. Remember, first responders, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, paramedics, things like that. Uh, if you send me an email with service discount on the subject line, give me the details of your service, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if your prior service, and I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service so that you can join and get your discount, not just like we do on sales on the first year, but on your recurring membership as well. All right, with that all wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, get into it. Let's get right in, stuck into it, as the British would say. Um, I want to start out today with what I want to call the death of water in the landscape. Um, and here's what I want to tell you. Until very recent times, if you own land, one of the first things that you did is go, where can I hold, where can I move, And where can I obtain water on my landscape and keep it there? I mean, that even, even when the Romans built the aqueducts and they put running water into the cities, if you owned any kind of land at all, you started looking right away at how every time it rained, you could take some of that water and contain it. And if you, if you lived in an area without a lot of rain, the first thing you started doing was digging a hole looking for water at the bottom of a well. 
And if you tried to locate that well in such a place that even if you had, you know, back in the days before we had all this fossil fuel and energy and stuff like that, if you had to draw water from the well, could it be placed in an area where the slope of the land could allow you to move the water without dragging it? I mean, water was key everywhere. When the earliest pioneers came to the United States and they plowed fields, they didn't plow straight lines. They either did contour plowing or key line plowing. We'll talk about those today. Uh, when anybody looked at a landscape, their first thought about it, if they were going to grow anything on it or live on it, was if water falls here, how will it move? How will it move? Where will it go? In today's world, in suburbia especially, the only thought given to water is how do we make sure it moves away from the house? Doesn't matter if the yard has a ditch in the middle and it's going to go down and in there. Doesn't matter if the house is lower than, you know, on a lower piece of land than all the land. It's just, can we make the land slope away from the house so we don't create foundation problems? And that's it. And how do we get the plumbing into the house so people can, you know, get water for showers and drinking and baths and stuff like that? And then about the only thing that's done today that puts water into the landscape with exceptions of a few, you know, ponds and rain barrels are starting to take off. Uh, you know, little garden ponds and what have you. And they're great things, and we'll talk about those. But mostly in America today, if people are looking at bringing water into their landscape, they're putting in a sprinkler system to water useless grass, and it is completely useless. I mean, we might need some areas for some sporting events or for the kids to play football, and lawns are good for that. But in general, most of the lawns that we spend our time watering and fertilizing and taking care of today are about as useless as the day is long in midsummer. Uh, so we, we do that, and maybe we put pools in, which are chlorinated or in some other chemical means uh, set up so that nothing will grow in them. And that's not wrong. I mean, you don't want you know certain types of algae and bacteria and, and other nasties growing in your pool, but maybe those things actually have a place in some other places. My point is that we have pipes under the ground that water our grass, Maybe we have some sprinklers that water our ornamentals in America today. And we have chemically treated pool water. We have chemically treated water in our homes. And the concept of actually holding water in our landscape has been largely done away with. And the first thing people say when you say, look, I put a little still pond in. Oh, my God, mosquitoes. They're called mosquito dunks. They're made with BT. They won't harm anything else that goes in the water. Your fishes can go in there. Your frogs can go in there. They pretty much uh, attack mosquitoes. They cost very little. You can buy a package of them for about 20 bucks, And for a couple small ponds, that's enough to last for over a year. You only need to use them at the time of the year that mosquitoes are active. And there's your mosquito problem, even if we avoid, you know, even if we don't go into biological things. Like if you put some fish in your ponds, you're not going to have any mosquitoes. But sometimes you get little ponds, fish can't really live in them because of where they're located or how small they are or whatever. We just don't want fish. So there's your, there's your, there's before anybody freaks out about mosquitoes today, BT Dunk. Search for it on Amazon. You'll find hundreds of different uh, sizes and kinds and varieties and brands and whatever. And you just take those and stick them in there once a month and no mosquitoes. And so we're done with the mosquito discussion before it starts. I'm going to tell you now that if anybody comments or asks me a question about mosquitoes after today's episode, it will be ignored because I've just given you all the information you need. Fish is a biologic control. If you can't do fish, BT dunk, 
Done. End of story. Not gonna deal with your concerns about mosquitoes. So that's the first thing that we hear. Uh, and, and then the thought is, well, it's gonna get stagnant or whatever. I got the solution for the green little ponds that won't go away. Barley straw bale. Uh, even larger stockpots, let's say tenth of an acre stockpots, farmers noticed a long time ago if they took a couple big bales of barley straw and they threw them in the pond in the, in, in the late spring as it started to go to summer when you would get all that algae and stagnation and stuff because the water's not moving enough and we could do other things about that. I'll talk about it today. But this is the easy answer. You throw that in there, that takes care of that. We're done. You can, in a little pond, we can just float bar, barley straw on the top of it and uh, when we do that, That, that'll do two things. One will do the effect of barley straws anyway, but two blocks a lot of the light out. So your animals can go in and out, right? Plants can also be used to, to take care of that concern. So the two concerns, mosquitoes, BT dunks or fish, stagnation, barley straw, and plants, and we're done with that discussion. Okay? It's that easy. Now there's other things we can do. When we build ponds, if we create a, a lot of different zones of depth, As the water temperature changes, the water will move and will drastically reduce it as well. If we do something to oxygenate the water, we'll reduce that. If we put fish in there that eat algae, then we won't have as much algae problems. If it's a small pond and there's like an accumulation of something on there like duckweed, duckweed will block the light from getting below to a large degree. That will reduce the growth of other things. The duckweed will take over the pond. Yes, great! Then we will skim the duckweed off. We will have a high nitrogen mulch and we will put it into our landscape elsewhere. Okay? I want you to stop seeing problems with water and realize that for every problem, there's not just a solution but an advantage. Okay, that's that's one of the big things that I wanted to make sure that we covered today early on before we get into all this stuff because I don't want people sitting through the whole thing going, mosquitoes are going to eat my children or it's going to turn into a giant stagnant swamp and stink. All your solutions are just laid out. There's other solutions. We'll get to them throughout the show, but I just want to show you how simple that they can be. I also want to talk before we get into this about the myths and realities of well, rain, and tap water. Generally, the hierarchy is this. Uh, the best water in the world that you can water and irrigate with is rainwater. Uh, pond water generally comes from rainwater, so it's the same thing but better because the pond might have ducks crapping in it or fish crapping in it, and now I have nutrient, so it's even better. Uh, then well, and then tap. And... Here's the reality. Well water and rainwater are really not that much different in their effect on irrigation in the landscape. They're just not. Uh, tap water has generally chemicals and things in it that we'd prefer not to be there, like chlorine and fluoride. If we're putting fluoride water into our landscape, we're actually accumulating fluoride in the landscape. We're accumulating fluoride in our food. So, yay, now not only are we drinking fluoride that shouldn't be in our water in the first place, but we're bioaccumulating it in our landscape. That's why I don't like it. It doesn't mean I won't use it. I sure as hell will to keep my plants alive. I did it in Texas all the time. It was the only real option that I have. We can get rid of some of the things with the, the chlorine simply by getting some rain barrels and filling them up. With our hose, we can leave it sit in there for about two days, and when we water with it, there's no chlorine left. It'll wall off gas, and a few other things will occur with the water that may make it better as well, like it'll be a lot warmer, and watering our plants with cold water when it's warm outside sometimes can create a shock effect where water that's the temperature of the surrounding area or closer to it may be better suited. But that's subjective because I've always noticed that the water that comes out of my faucet in the south When I use tap water, it's quite warm in the summer anyway. So there you go. That's just another little thought that people have 
And I want to talk about that from, from another standpoint today as well. The hype. Um, the difference is not as big as you think that it is. And it's not as big as the purists tell you it is. I'm going to tell you, this is, this is where the, the entire concept comes from. You have your garden. And it's, it's doing okay, but you've got to water it every day, every other day, every three days, whatever it is based on your climate, your soil conditions, or whatever. And it's growing, and it's green, and it, it looks pretty happy. And then one day, the rains come. And the rains come heavy. It's not heavy enough to damage things because it's so like it's not a tornado a storm or something or hail. It's just a good steady downpour. And it lasts for, let's say, an hour and a half, two hours. And in that hour and a half, two hours, you get a good soaking inch and a quarter, inch and a half of rain. And then the clouds part and it's late evening and it's still light out, but it's cooled off from the rain. It rained late enough that it didn't just turn it into a human steam bath in the summer. It actually rained just before dark. And then like you've got like this hour to walk around and you walk out and it smells good and it feels good and it's cool in your summer. And you look at your garden and it's all perked up. It's all green. It never looks like that when you water it. You go out the next morning before the heat comes. Wow, it seems like the plants have grown a half an inch overnight, and boy, they're just doing great. Let me tell you what's happened. When you irrigate, you water an area, and you saturate an area, and the area around the area you've irrigated is dry as a bone. And the longer we go without rain, the more that that's a case. This is an experiment you can do to understand what's happening to your irrigation water. Go get two sponges, one dry and one sopping wet. So take, you don't want it bone dry, right? Take one sponge, wet it down, and wring it out so you can't get any more water out of it. Okay? Now take another sponge and make it wet to the point where it's dripping, right? And then lay it on, you know, get one of those ones, the greenback scrubby things is the best one for this. Lay it on its back on that greenback scrubby thing and take the top sponge that's dry and put it on the bottom sponge and leave it there for about an hour. If you really want to get creative and do like a Mr. Remember Mr. Wizard's World when you were kids on Nickelodeon? If you're, if you're of my age group and you did all these science experiments, you want to do it really kind of cool? The one that's sopping wet, like color the water with like red food coloring or something so you can see it. Not just feel it. But an hour later, hour or two later, pick it up and squeeze and both sponges will have about the same amount of water in them. We call that osmosis. Water flows down the concentration gradient. Uh, if there's any type of absorbable material and nothing that creates an impermeable barrier, it'll go from areas of greater concentration to areas of lesser concentration There's an absolute about water moving at right angle to contour unless something influences and absorb absorption properties will change that hard fast rule. Okay, And that's why the, even the sponge on the top, because it has absorption properties, will pull the water out of the lower sponge. So there you go. That's what's happening when you water. You have this garden that you've got all this great soil and you've prepared it and you're so happy and you did such a great job and you put your mulch in and you put your compost in and you turned it and you got it beautiful and you've been doing it for years and you stick your hand down there, it's all moist and damp and it's great. And even with that, and even though it's, it's, it's got greater absorption properties than the surrounding earth, the surrounding dry earth is atrophying and pulling water out as you water. 
When it rains and the whole ground is saturated, the water doesn't get pulled away. It stays in place longer. That's the big reason that the rain seems to do so much more. And that's why. And that, that, that means that our well water is, you might as well call it equivalent. You might as well call it equivalent in the quality of the water. The reason the rain does what it does is because it soaks the entire landscape. I also want to talk about kind of the rules for using water. If you, if you get these rules down in your head, you'll be able to make water do anything you want on your property within the reasons and limitations that you exist in. In other words, if you have a tenth of an acre lot in suburbia, you can't put a one acre lake in. Right? There, there are some limitations. If your house is at the lowest point on your land and the highest point on your land is significantly higher than the roof line, you can't move rainwater from your roof to the highest point of the land without using some type of energy. Right? You can't use gravity because you've got too much of a variance. But other than the extremes, if you'll focus on these five rules about water, you can make water do pretty much anything you want. The first one, and this is an absolute... Over time, because I just told you how the rule gets broken, but it doesn't really get broken. As soon as, as soon as the water is sucked away from your garden bed, it begins to do this thing anyway. Water moves at right angle to contour. And somebody says, well, what if there's a log in the way? The log becomes the contour. Whichever way is down is the way water goes. You can get some wicking action. That's true. We get a hugel culture bed. We get some wicking action. But that has its own limitations. It can only move water so far up before the wicking limitation takes off. And then the, then the ability to hold the water is overpowered by weight and gravity. And the water returns to right angle to contour. Think about it this way. Water always goes down. It goes down when it goes across our landscape. It goes down when it goes through our landscape. If I have a hill with a three degree pitch downhill... Water lands on there, and it's hard-packed, and none of the water soaks in. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that water moves straight across the landscape, creates erosion and all kinds of problems. If the water soaks in, this is where people lose it. They think the water soaks in, it stays there. It doesn't stay there. I don't care how great the soil is, the water is still moving down and downgrade. It's just moving downgrade under the landscape. That slows it down. That's wonderful. That's what we want. That's how we hold it in place longer so we can create more life. But it never stops completely. It's always moving somewhere. If we have an impermeable barrier, like a completely sealed lake, the water is still going to move. It's still going to move. Because sooner or later we're going to get a watershed moment and the limitations of our impoundment will be seen and we'll go out over an overflow, hopefully a well-designed one. Additionally, while it sits there and the sun beats down on it, it's going to be evaporated. right? And as soon as we allow that water a point of exit, it will move at right angle to contour. So the only way we keep water still is in a sealed container of some kind, whether it's a sealed dam or a bowl. And even in that case, it's just waiting for its opportunity to escape. As long as it's not behind an impermeable barrier, an unpassable barrier, it's moving, even if it's imperceptibly slow. And most dams leak. They weep very, very slowly, very, very softly. Even well-designed dams have certain places they leak. They leak backwards into the landscape. From the source. And when they oversaturate, it moves around under the land. It begins to weep around through the landscape. And it always goes where? Right angle to contour. 
And, and I, I'm beating this one up, and I'm going to tell you why. There are very few things in nature that are 100% absolutes that we can apply to design. Water, right angle to contour is one of them. Even some of the other rules I'm going to give you are not necessarily always true, such as the next rule is slow water creates life. If we live in a sterile environment and there's no nutrient in the slow water and there's no plants partaking of it, it may not. But in general, that is the next rule. Slow water creates life. So knowing that water moves at right angle to contour, we want to make water, this is, this is the, the thing. This is the thing you need to be thinking about. Over and over and over again, as you look at the slope of your land, the height of your roof, anything else you can plan, I want water to take the longest, slowest path off my property possible. And I'm going to stop worrying that I'm going to have mosquitoes or stagnant water or everything's going to be muddy. Because if I design it right and I control how it moves through, I'm not going to have any of those problems. Longest, slowest path of our property. Look at that as it pertains to modern America and suburbia. Third world, uh, even, I mean, I'm sorry, first world uh, all over, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. The antithesis of this is what we do. We have rain gutters to get the water as quickly as possible away from our house into storm drains and down the drain and away it goes. And so much of it's lost. The states like Colorado, they tell you you don't have right to the water that hits your roof are stupid because most of the water that hits your roof, they're not getting anyway. It's being lost through evaporation and it's causing erosion. So basically everything we do with water in the modern society's mentality is wrong. We should be making the water move slowly. And from one place to the other, we should be putting it to its duties. We'll talk about that in a bit as well, the duties of water. Um, the next thing is fast water becomes oxygenated. Oxygenated? Oxygenated. Fast water gets oxygen put into it. So it's not that we never want fast water. It's that when we have fast water, we want to be very careful about where it goes and what it does and how we control it. If we have fast water, we might want it to do something like go through a flow form or a stream form. And it may only go through there for a short period of time where it enters another body of water that's much slower and controls it. If we let water move quickly under the wrong circumstances, it begins to erode. And whatever we're holding back, whether it's a reservoir under the earth or above the earth, right? So we've got a lake or an under, under, you know, if we have a forest lake, so to speak, which is the mulch is wet, if we let water erode, then moving at right on our angle to contour will quickly deplete or empty our reservoir. So fast water creates oxygen, and there's a place for it, but we might do something like create a stream form that's very, very shallow and very, very wide and very, very slow, and as it comes from a place where it's one meter above to one meter below, and by the time we get to the drop-off point, we've only taken away half a meter, we may let it fall that last half meter over rocks or through a flow form, but then into another reservoir that's basically still and has its discharge uh, place far away. And so we have two bodies of water, one, and they're both discharging at the same rate. But as that water moves through that little shallow stream area and then drops off that waterfall in the end, it picks up oxygen. And that also creates life. So fast and slow water both create life. They do it in different ways. But the absolute that we need to keep in our mind, slow water is good. Slow water is good because we get more opportunities to use it and to eventually rebound it before it goes away. The next one is 
and this is, I, I kind of covered this, so I'm going to go through a little bit quicker than, than the other points. For water to move across land without erosion, it must be wide, shallow, and slow. If you can create a water flow that's wide, shallow, and slow, it will do little to no erosion. And you want no Because as soon as you get a little, the water starts to change the landscape. So if you can take your two hands and put them so you're looking down at the back of your hands and put your fingertips together, your, 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 your center fingertips together, imagine all your fingertips touching. And then if you kind of create like a, a stream profile there that's really, really shallow with the banks just enough to contain that water, and it's, it's let's say, going to be an inch deep, and it's going to be three or four yards wide, That's going to do like no erosion at all. But if you start moving the center fingers down so you start to create a deep spot in the center, that water is going to start to flow faster and it's going to start to erode the edges of the stream bank. And you're going to go from wide and shallow and slow to narrow, deep, and fast. And that's exactly what we don't want. If we do that... We better have a bulletproof stream design that we're dealing with. If you can go and look at streams and rivers all over America, especially small ones, you'll see it better. You'll see places where the water is really, really slow, really, really wide, and really, really shallow. And then they generally they'll get a little bit deeper and they'll go into kind of a rapids mode. And eventually they'll empty into a hole which slows down, which is deep and, and wide. And that'll also work. Right, But there's so much water moving through there, we can't get our heads around it in a landscape design, especially a suburban design. If we want water to move in our designs slowly, without erosion, we need shallow, wide, and slow. So when we build something like a swale, which we'll get to in a second here, we're going right into it next, we want the discharge point to be at least a meter, and for us in America, say a yard wide, and we want it to be hard-packed, And we want it to only let maybe 10 centimeters or maybe even, you know, uh, which is, you know, about, what, two inches of water uh, out. So it's only two inches lower than the rest of everything else. So we're, we're discharging an inch of water maybe because we're not doing it all at once. As soon as it starts to come, it starts to trickle all over and it starts to discharge. As soon as that happens, that water passively goes down to its next feature in the landscape. If we were to take that and we were to make that sill, let's say six inches deep and six inches wide, it'll blow out the end. It, it'll cut, it'll erode, it'll make the erosion worse instead of less. So water, wide, shallow, slow, stops erosion. All right. The next thing is water is the greatest creator of biodiversity we know of. Sometimes people freak out. One of the, the like, like airy, fairy, hippie, and nut job chicks, right? this chick was nuts at the Holzer Seminar. And she was not just nuts because I say she's nuts. Apparently they did a PDC before the Holzer Seminar, and there was a guy there that was a certified clinical psychologist who said, in my professional opinion, this woman is nuts. Not crazy, not mentally impaired, nuts. So this nut job that was dressed up like a clown uh, went off screaming something that she'd picked up in German and crying because they were cutting trees down to put in a pond. Okay, the pond will do more than the alders and the birch trees to bring in biodiversity. I will cut trees to put in a pond. I'll cut 20-year-old regrowth forests to put in a pond. Would I go cut 100-year-old old-growth forest to put in a pond? Likely not. 
maybe a little bitty one that's that's like actually going to add to the the. But I'm not going to cut much. I'm not going to be timbering redwoods to put in a pond. But but 15 year old pine trees and and 20 year old oak trees that can be taken and used and harvested as timber and used to build on my property and put in water. You bet because the the diversity. And the biology that will be brought into the system from adding water and water features will blow away anything that you can do with planting. You can plant a thousand different varieties of plants, and they still won't bring in the life that a tenth of an acre pond will. They just won't, especially a properly managed and installed and then surrounded with all of these different plantings and making sure it's not just like, because if you think of a stock pond in the southern United States that sits in the field surrounded by a couple hundred head of cattle and there's maybe one little clump of trees and that's it, you think, no, it doesn't. And those even bring in a, a tremendous amount of biodiversity, but that is not the proper way to manage a pond. When we manage ponds, even little bitty ones, even 15-gallon ones, properly, and we create habitat around them, they'll bring in so much more life than we can do with the planting. So water is the greatest creator of biodiversity that we know of, and aquaculture is the most productive system that we know of. So think about that. Now, we, we've talked about the why and the rules. So let's talk about some methods of controlling, moving, and managing water, what they are and how they work and what their goals are. The first one is a swale. A swale is probably the most cost-effective, lowest input method of harvesting water and the landscape and doing so extremely efficiently. And eventually, we're going to talk about how they work with ponds, dams, lakes. Uh, but right now, I want to talk about how they work on, on their own. A swale is nothing more than a ditch on contour. That is all that a swale is. It is a ditch on contour, which is exactly the way that we do not build ditches in America today. If you go, drive down the road and there's a ditch on the side of the road during a rainstorm in America today, most of the places you'll see that water moving and you'll see it moving quite rapidly away and into a drain system somewhere. With a swale, we want exactly the opposite. Is the rain overtakes the swale's ability to let the water through. So if it starts raining initially and only rains a little bit, the swale might not fill up at all because the, the ground and the, the floor of the water is permeable. There's only so much runoff coming from uphill, downhill into the swale. And a little bit of rain, it might not actually even begin to fill. It might not even appear to do anything, even though it has. There's a little effect now that water's in there. But once we get enough rain and the, and the water saturates the land where water will stand like in a puddle, we'll see our swale start to fill. And as it fills, if we've done our swell right, and there's only one way that's right, dead level across the bottom and the top, it has to be dead level. Level's absolute. It's not almost level. It's not pretty much level. It's level or it's not. Once we get that done, that water will fill like a giant puddle. It'll fill, it'll fill, and it'll fill. And let's leave filling beyond capacity out right now. Let's just say it fills right to capacity but doesn't go over, and it stops. When the rain stops... What will water always, 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 always do? It will move at right angle to contour. Since the swell is dead level, and that is contour, the water has to go only one direction that it can, downgrade from the swale. Hence, when we dig the swale, we take the earth out of the swale, we put it on the downhill side, and we build a berm. We do not pack the berm. We do not pack the bottom of the swale, sometimes in a big swale. Meter, two meters wide, right? And a meter high berm. We'll actually send a bulldozer through and rip the bottom of the swale to make it get more water in. 
okay, uh, with, a, with a ripping attachment. But let's say we just built a basic swale. That water sits there and begins to permeate. Now, it moves at right angle to contour, but loosely packed earth has the wicking effect. So that berm that's downgrade will become super saturated as it pulls the water out of the ground below it and directly out of the swale itself, and then the water begins to settle and it goes downhill in the landscape instead of over the landscape. And then the next rain comes, and the next, and every time a rain comes in a swale system, we further hydrate the land, and over years we can hydrate the land to the point where we completely drought-proof a landscape. Just from swales. That's how powerful they are. Now, as we do that, or as we get a watershed moment, there's a point where even if the swale is two meters wide and a meter deep, a big swale, a tree-growing swale system, and we can do this a little bitty swale that a wheelbarrow goes in. We can do an even smaller swale, something that's about as big. Take your two hands, put them together like Allstate, pull them six inches apart, and turn your hands up a little bit. We can build that. We can build that, and we can dig that, and it'll do the same thing on a smaller scale. Sooner or later, no matter how, if it's a little all-state swale, a wheelbarrow swale that's maybe as wide as your shoulders or a little wider, or two-meter big-ass swale for growing a food forest, that swale will exceed its capacity. We have to give the water a place to go. If we don't want water to do damage, what do we need to make it do? Wide, shallow, and slow. So wherever we want the swale to discharge, and usually it's one end or the other, we can do both. We can do both. And we'll talk about how we can change things up doing both. But we could even do the center of a swale. Wherever we want it to do that, we don't put the berm there. No berm. It has to be a minimum of a meter wide and about 10 centimeters lower than the rest of the swale's lip. And we hard pack it. And the water just weeps over there. And if we're smart, downgrade from there, there's another swale. And it discharges at a different point, maybe on the opposite side. And it discharges to another swale. And maybe it goes to a pond. And there, maybe there's ponds interconnecting here. But just get the swale picture in your head. Because you can do this in your backyard. And you can make it look really cool. And there's some other ways to use the swell principle that we'll get to in a minute. Another one I'm not going to go deep into today because I'm not really the, the more conventional agriculture type of guy, but it's key line plowing. Key line plowing is where we plow just off of contour, barely. Barely off, we come barely off a of contour, and then the next plow line comes barely off a of contour, and then the next plow line comes barely off a of contour, and they keep going back and forth, and they overlap. Now, where they overlap is going to be a draw. So now make the all-state sign. And, you know, you're in good hands with Allstate, but take the edges of your hands till just your pinkies are touching uh, and in the size of your hand, like two karate chops coming together, and then make a little bit of a V there. And that's a draw in the landscape. Now, if we have a slope with a draw like that in the landscape, all of our water when it rains is going to run down that draw. And if we want to hydrate the rest of the landscape and move the water away from the draw, then we start our key line right where that draw is and we pull slightly off contour downhill away. And we do it again the other way, and then again the other way. And then the water coming down the draw is moved out into the landscape away from the draw. Because the, 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 if we did that on contour, it wouldn't work. Because the draw will let the water fill up the, 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 the plow line, and then go back into the draw and start running down. By pulling it away from contour, away from the draw, so that it's actually moving downhill, but it's moving downhill very slowly versus the rapid downhill of the draw... And this is a this is moderate draws, basically, not some canyon. We're going to pull the water out of the draw and into the landscape. And it, it really is that simple. And you can just Google key line plowing and learn a lot more about it. 
For those in suburbia where swales may not be what we're looking for, we can do something, or in key line plowing is just out of the question because we're not in a plowing situation, we can do something else called a contour path. A contour path would be the same type of thing. We, we work out the level lines in our property with an A-frame level or what have you, and I'll get into that in a bit, and we figure out where they are. And then we put our garden beds on contour. Okay, So instead of doing our garden beds in like this box formation, whatever the land says is level is what we go with. Now, in between our beds, we take those paths that are going to have some slope. Even when you think land's flat, it's never flat. When you put a level on it, you'll see it's not flat. Where it's in between the beds, we go in there with something like a rogue hoe or an, uh, a standard hoe, depending on how tough our land is, and we make that path dead level. It's almost like a little terrace. Now we have a garden bed on contour, followed by a dead level path, And then below that path is another garden bed on path, a contour. Right? And then another dead level path. And as many garden beds as we want to put in, we do that with. What happens when it rains? What happens when it rains? Well, from uphill, the water comes down at right angle to contour. Some of it ends up in our first garden bed. It oversaturates the garden bed. It can only hold so much water. The water discharges. Where does it go? It goes on to the contour path on the downhill side of the first bed. That, what does the water do there? It moves at right angle to contour, which is where, basically, it's down. It, it doesn't go across because it's level. right? Water doesn't move across a level. It goes down. So once it can't soak into the path anymore, what happens? It, because it's a little, the, the, the bed's higher on one side than the other. The lower bed begins to absorb the water. And it moves into that bed, and it goes down, either straight down, wicked into the bed, and it goes to the next path, and the next path, until we, until we atrophy off. So just by putting contour paths between our garden beds, we dramatically increase the efficiency of every, every bit of rainfall that comes in, and we hold more of it by slowing it down in our gardens. And even when we irrigate, remember what I talked about, wicking of the land, etc.? When we irrigate a system designed like that, the water still moves at right angle to contour, it still moves away, It's still wicked off by the dry surrounding landscape. It's still not as good as rain, but we slow that process down. So the plants that we're growing and the animals living in that moist condition we've created get longer to utilize the water. And when a rain event happens, the landscape and the surrounding area stays saturated for a longer period of time because the water's not gone away. See how that works. Another thing we can do are just simple earthworms. So I talked about when we, when we dig a swale... We take the, the, the earth and we berm it up on the downhill side of the swale. But if we just go in and put in a garden bed and do it on contour, then it's going to effectively be an above-ground swale. It's going to create the same effect. We have to think about the end, right? Like if we're going to have to do, like you know, I, I'll, I'll do some video for you guys this week. I just put in two berms that are hugel berms, so they got wood inside them. But they do the same thing, and there's a gap in the middle. The gap's at least a meter wide. And it's hard packed. I don't have to pack that area. It's rock, right? So, and it's it's done mostly with compost. So it's very very absorbent. So it's not going to have a lot of erosion. But we do have to think about the ends of our beds. And we don't want to take an earth berm, put it all the way across our landscape on contour from end to end of property because it will dry the lower property out. 
We need a place for the excess water to discharge around, continue downgrade, and maybe be picked up by another swell or another berm or another, uh, another pond, something else that controls the water. So earth berms work just like a swale, but not quite. All right, So we're, we're creating an above-ground disruption versus a below-ground catchment. But it does a lot of the same thing. And a contour path with your garden beds is basically combining terracing uh, and earth berms, but we're doing it in a way that's more integrated and on a smaller scale. That's another way to think about it. Hugel culture is a way to control water. Hugel culture, for those that are new to the show, is where we take a whole bunch of woody material And we bury it under a bunch of dirt. We can do true hogaculture the way Seb Holter does. We build up a pile of wood about a meter high. We pile dirt up at a 70-degree angle on both sides, about two meters high. So a six-foot-high berm. We can make these huge. Well, we can get a, an excavator, if we're ambitious, we can dig a hole two or three feet in the ground, fill it up with wood, and build a regular-looking box garden around it. It won't be as efficient, but it'll work. We can just pile a bunch of logs on contour and put a contour berm on top of the logs. We can put those um, those earth berms just slightly off contour and create a key line effect with our berms, which if we're doing a lot of berms going down a grade is a better way to do it because it lets the water slowly move through the entire system versus trying to hold it like a dam. We can do all of those things with hugo culture, but what makes it work As wood, as it decomposes, becomes spongy and holds water. That's it. That's the whole thing. So people say, well, can I use this kind of wood or that kind of wood? I don't care. You can use any kind of wood you want. Certain types of wood obviously are not as good as others. Allopathic woods, woods that don't break down. Black locust is about uh, 90% fungicide in, uh, in its, its core, right? So it doesn't break. Last 100, you make a, a fence post out of black locust, come back in 50 years, and it's, it's hard as a nail sitting out in the elements. So that would be the few exceptions. Pines and things like that, green pine needles create acidity. Pine wood creates no acidity. It just doesn't. It's a myth. But it breaks down very quickly, so the life of the system is, is shorter. But if we used mixed wood and we put it in there and it starts to break down, as it starts to break down, all you have to do to understand this principle is take a walk in a forest or a wood lot or anywhere that's wooded that has some wood laying on the ground. Do it in a relatively dry period of the year. Find a piece of wood laying on the ground covered with leaves, uncover it, turn it over, and feel it. it's wet. That's it. And hugel culture, because of that, is going to hold that moisture in the logs. Uh, next one, terraces. If we put in a terrace, we have a slope, we come down to a level, and then we go down another slope to another level. Obviously, all the water above the terrace is going to come downgrade, hit the terrace, slow down, soak in. It's it, it, Again, it's that simple. Um, ponds. When we look at ponds, we can do little bitty ponds. I just did a little bitty still pond. 15 gallons. It's probably holding nine because of the rocks that I put in it. It's a rubber tub I got for 20 bucks from Tractor Supply. I dug a hole. I leveled the bottom with a simple spirit level. I put the tub in there. I filled the dirt around it. I put rocks around it. I put rocks inside it. I filled it up with water. We had the mosquito terror uh, comments. Every other commenter. What about mosquitoes? BT dunks or fish. Done. Stagnants. Uh, Plants, I've got some lily pads growing in it. Um, I can put other types like miniature cattail. I can put any kind of plants in there. That'll help it. And as long as it's just algae, I don't care if it's quote-unquote stagnant. We got evaporation. We got rainfall. I can go take the garden hose and stick it in there and overflow it a little bit uh, to give it some new fresh water. Easy, peasy, simple. And what does that do? 
It brings in dragonflies, which are predators. It gives spiders a place to drink. It gives lizards a place to drink. It gives uh, snakes that are actually good pest controllers, like garter snakes and ribbon snakes, places to drink. Uh, it gives toads and frogs places to breed and to drink and to swim. It creates biodiversity. And I can do it with large and small. What I want to talk about, though, a little bit here is how ponds, uh, on a larger scale, can work with swales to do some really cool things. If I put a pond in a landscape, and then out of both sides of the dam side, so the deep dam side where we're obstructing the water, I put a swale. That at the point where I want the dam to be full, that's where the bottom of the swale is. So as soon as the dam gets to that point, the water starts to go up the swales. The swales are dead level. They go out to a point where they discharge. One swale or both swales may discharge, depending on what I want the water to do. They may discharge at different heights. We'll talk about what I can do with that later. Okay. Now, it starts to rain. The pond starts to fill. Initially, the swales are filling from water catchment the pond doesn't get because the swales extend maybe in a big landscape. Let's say I got 100 yards of swale out one side and 100 yards. So I got 200 yards of swale. So think of your body as the dam and stick your hands out like when you were a kid and you thought you were going to fly, right? Not in front of you like Superman, but fly like an airplane. So you got your arms out. Your arms are the swales. Your, your trunk, your torso is the dam. So all of that distance is taking up water. And as that water gets taken up and the swales begin to fill, since they're dead level, they're going to discharge out their level side where? Into the dam. So as the dam fills, because the dam's lower, it's filling for the first time, the swales are bringing water into the dam. What happens when the water in the dam reaches the top of what we call its freeboard, its high point on the dam side? And now the swales have reached a point where they've reached equilibrium. Well, at that point, if the water stops coming, nothing. The swales actually look like extensions of the dam for a while. The water just sits there. But it's moving where? Right angle to contour. Now the dam is packed in. We've put in a keyway. We've locked the water up so it can't go down greater. If it does, it's going so, so slow. But the water in the swales can go weep into the land, seep into the berms, and irrigate and hydrate the landscape down grade. Okay? What if the water exceeds the swale's capacity? It gets to the sill at the end of the swale. And it slowly drip, drops out. It's a spillway for the dam. But unlike these big spillways where you go and you see the water like rushing out, it's a slow weeping. And it goes down to the next structure in the landscape. Right? Now, let's say that we have two dams downgrade of our swale systems. And we have set up our swales so that one side is just an inch lower than the other side. When the dam fills, so you got two swales coming out of one dam, one side is negative one and the other one we'll call zero, right? So it's an inch and the other one's a, a, even a half inch below. All the water's going to go out the half inch side, all right? The half inch lower, and I'm talking not lower than a dam, lower than each other's sill. So I got two dead level swales coming out and I cut the sill a little bit lower on one side than the other. All that water, if it's going to the left, will dump out to the left. And we'll have to really exceed capacity for it to fill up so much that it pushes back the one with a little bit higher sill and goes out that side. What if I want to change where the water goes, though? What if I want to have my water spilling out the left and for some reason, whatever it might be, now I want the water to go up the right swale and go over its spillway. If I go in there with some sandbags, 
let's say, two inches high, because I only got a difference of a half inch, and I dropped those two-inch sandbags along my, my sill, those two inches of sandbags will move tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of gallons, 200 yards away, because I got 100 yards on each swale, push it back up the right swale and over that side. And if I change my mind and I want the water coming back here again, I take the sandbags away. If I take them all away, if I only take two away and I get a little gap in the middle, then I create deep water, narrow, deep water, fast, bad. Right? But I can move tons of water side to side with a sandbag by pushing water back and forth through the systems very, very passively. That's how powerful this stuff is. And it can be done in miniature. It can be done with a couple little ponds that are, you know, as big as a car. In suburbia, the same way with smaller swales and smaller flows. It can be taken up to two meter wide, one meter deep, huge systems, kilometers or miles long. You know, maybe not one of them a mile long, but by the time we add up 20 swales in a landscape, we have two, three miles of swale in a landscape on even just five or ten acres. Some amazing things start to happen when we start to do that. Another thing we can do, though, is we can put in what's called a lock. Now, if you've ever like seen pictures of the Panama Canal, there's parts of it that are just like you just sail through, and there's other parts where there's locks. So the ship pulls in, and then it fills up like a staircase, and then it pulls up to the next lock, and then that one closes, and it brings it up. And that's on the, the, the Atlantic side that that's done. And the Pacific side, it just dumps out. We can put in locks. Um, what we could do is let's say we had a pond uh, on, on, our, on our left and a pond on our right, and there's, a let's say, a... One meter difference. They're about a yard. This one's a yard higher than the other one. Well, we could create kind of a stream in between the two of them, and we can put in a set of locks that are just basically have boards stacked in them, and simply by removing boards off either side, we can control how much water we let flow through from the top to the bottom. Locks are very simple. I'm not going to go deeper than that. It's probably hard to understand, but if you look up lock systems for ponds, you can see how to do that. And that way I can decide that I'm willing to let the pond at the highest point deplete to save the lower pond. And I can even go into the upper pond maybe and I can plant some things right into the base of the pond where there's great topsoil, get a short harvest crop during the dry season in that wonderful soil in that marshy-like condition. And then when the weeds come and the pond refills, all the weeds die. I can do that down or up either way by controlling things with locks and swales and systems like that. I also can look at stream flows. I, I said I would cover this when I got to this podcast. I talked about Sepp Holzer. He wanted to do a lock-based system to get these two ponds, and that's exact. It was about a meter and a half between the two ponds, and there was no way to move the water from pond A to pond B and get there and, and be level when you got there without creating, like, basically draining the upper pond. It would have just been too fast, too much erosion. So he said, "Let's go. Let's go two meters." All right, so a little over six feet wide, 10 centimeters down. So that's just under four inches. So we've got four inches of depth, six feet wide, hard-packed flow. And then what we'll do is we'll come only down at like a half a degree of pitch. So the water's moving extremely slow, and we'll grade this horseshoe-shaped stream. You know, six, maybe nine. I think in the end he decided to do almost nine feet of width by only four inches of depth. And it would only go to that four-inch capacity during a watershed moment. Day-to-day, -day, it would probably only be about an inch deep of water. 
And only when the water level came up would it would it come up to that, and then it would drop back down, and just like that, up and down and up and down. But it would be constant flow because this place has a lot of water. There's so the topsoil in Montana is you people from the south. If you go up there and you look at it and they dig into it with a backhoe, you'll cry. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. You're talking you know a foot, two feet of black, beautiful topsoil, and that just holds so much water on these mountains. So the, this is a this is where there's a lot of water coming in just about all year long. That stream flow goes around. Now you got to get they got to get vehicles across it. So he takes a spot along here where you stop your half to repitch. You go dead level. You go dead level as wide as you want it. Let's say 10 feet of the stream flow is dead level, and they put rocks in there and push them into the ground. So you create a hard pack surface, and the water goes in between the rocks, and that oxygenates the water, cleans the water purifies the water, puts life into the water, and then it comes back to its half-degree pitch and it goes over to the next pond. Now, this is what everybody was struggling with at the seminar. When it gets to the other pond, it's still going to be like you've only taken a half a meter to three-quarters of a meter, so I've got a meter to three-quarters of a meter left of drop. But since I'm dropping into a pond, now I can let the water go fast. So I put a bunch of rocks in there, And I let the water spill over and drop into the next pond because now I've got a hundred yards of the pond before it comes out the other end. So I've got plenty of time for that water to slow down. If I brought it through like a, a, a creek all the way through where it's moving much faster, I'd have to put that lock system in. And, and Katarina made a decision. I thought this was a good decision to go with the stream form. Uh, shallow, wide, and slow versus a lock system because it cost less money, was easier to do, and we could get it done like now. I mean, it was like a couple hours worth of work to get it done. It was probably more work to take the, the, the bucket on the front end loader and, and, and drive the rocks to the position to put them in than to do the rest of the work. Really, really easy to do, but it has to be done right. That grade has to be super slow. That water has to be super shallow, right? And, and that, that the, the ground has to be well packed so that it, it will just let the water flow gently across it. But where all those rocks were, and they're just big, flat stones pushed into the ground a little bit, and the water flows around them, that's your hard-packed surface. You can drive a truck right across there. It's like a bridge that you can always drive across. Even in a watershed moment where you can barely see the rocks, you can see where they are, you can drive a cloth, you know you're not going to sink in, you're not going to do... The big thing isn't the truck getting through, right? Trucks can drive... You're talking, you know, two to four inches of water, right? You know, maybe an inch during a dry period, maybe a half inch during a really dry period, maybe four inches when the water's high, you know? Um, and a truck can drive through four inches, but you'll damage and you'll erode and you'll create deep spots, and then you've taken away your your wide, flat, shallow, and slow and made deep, narrow, and fast, and you will blow out your dam. But by putting these rocks in place as a crossing point, we prevent that from happening. Okay, so those stream flows. And then um, simple seeping pathways. It, 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 this is This is a new one for me. And I picked it up on the PDC with Lott and Mollison. I think it's on disc 11 for those that have it. And it's this place with like five acres that he ends up putting like seven ponds in and this neighbor's an asshole. And it's, it's, it's watching Jeff do the, the earthworks for this property is like sitting in front of Einstein and having him teach you physics uh, and being able to understand what he's talking about. I mean, it's, it's that brilliant. Well, one of the things he did was down toward the bottom of his land, from putting all these swales in, this bottom corner of his land got wet. It began to come into like a little bit of a wetland. So he made a two-meter-wide 
crescent-shaped pond about 60 meters long. So two yards by 60 yards is the best way to think of it. A little crescent on contour. And then put the dirt on the downhill side. Okay, and it's, you know, six feet deep. It's not really, really deep. Just about six foot deep. Well, this is not like... And then he, when they dig the hole, he told the, the guy with the, the, the backhoe, and then turn your bucket you know, down and just ram the shit out of the sides. Ram the bottom, ram the, just pack it tight. And then the next day, from all the water that's being held in the landscape, it just fills up. The water just fills up. Then, he comes in and digs by hand about a half a meter deep to a meter deep, I don't remember which one, paths, cuts, like, like uh, uh, rectangle, you know, square-shaped paths, straight out of the side of the pond up into the landscape on contour. So these little paths are on contour and allowing the pond as it fills to seep into them and fills them with gravel. So bottom are dead level. So obviously you start building these Uh, you mark from the edge of the dam out, and you start digging them not from the dam side, but from the far side back to the dam. Right? Because if you start at the dam, the water's going to be going into your ditch as you dig it. So you dig it back, you get it nice and square, you fill it with gravel, and just before you break through the dam, you get the gravel dead level to the surface, you break through and you backfill your gravel as the dam weeps in. So now, even though I basically created a little pond, Maybe it's uh, you know 10, 20 yards of path with this gravel, and the wa it's absolutely saturated with water. Since it's filled with pea gravel, I can stand on it. doesn't even seem wet. And then he put gardens in between the paths. So the pond seeps into the gravel, that weeps into the land, that watered the, 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 the garden. And that was his primary garden on the property. So we, uh, seeping pathways. And one of his students in there says, well, what do you call that? And he's like, ah, seeping pathway, chenampa-like, on-contour, gravel pathway, something else, you know. And his point was there's like so many things that we're doing with permaculture by tying these systems in together. We actually have to create language to describe it because some of this stuff's never been done before. So it's kind of like a chenampa system, but it's not because it's gravel and it comes out of the pond and it's not in between islands in the pond. It's, it, it, it's totally different. And it's absolutely amazing. By the way, I'm in, I'm in discussions with Jeff Lawton again about the events that I want to, or an event I want to run next year and getting him to do it. And he's giving me his rates. And as long as I can sell enough tickets to cover his rates, we can do it. Uh, but I'm going to have him on the show. It looks like I'll be interviewing him next week, uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon, which is like six in the morning his time because he's in Sydney or Sydney area. And uh, so I'm going to have him on. But when I, when I have him on, I'm going to ask him for permission to take that segment from the PDC disc and put it into a series of YouTube videos and share it. If he says no, he says no. And it is copyrighted material, and it's an expensive set, and that's probably the best thing in it. But if he says, okay, I'll put it in there. And if he doesn't, I'll do it. I've got this new thing. The swivel thing finally came from my iPhone, uh, where I can mount my iPhone on my camera tripod and it'll follow me and all I can turn it on and off and, and move it up and down with a remote control a wireless mic I wear around my neck it's really cool I'll draw it out for you on a whiteboard and, and make it make more sense but this is one of the more innovative things I've ever seen in my life and it's part of why I'm such a fan of Lawton I want to talk about some tools that you can use to get all this stuff level and understand it 
uh, and, and survey your land and understand if things have sanity checks. So you can do things like figure out, can I move water from my roof to the land, even though the land's upgrade? Because you might be able to if you do things the right way. One of the first things that I think you should get your hands on, because it's so damn cheap and will start to change the way you look at uh, everything, is a Johnson level, uh, which is a hand sight level. It's a little yellow thing. It's about four or five inches long. It's got a bubble in it. You stand in a place and you look through it and there's a bubble and you get the bubble to where it's dead level with the center line and the sight you're looking at at the distance is level with your eyeball. Now, that doesn't really tell you a lot in of itself. But if you go to a different point in the landscape and do the same thing and you connect those two with your mind, you've got a contour line. Now, would I go dig a swale based on that? No. But it gives me a sanity check. And you start to see land differently. And when I was out at the Holzer seminar, I had my little Johnson level, and I was looking all over the landscape, and I was seeing these contour lines. And what was cool is I'd look up a hill, and I'd go to point A, point B, and they might be 100 yards apart. They go, that's a contour line. And I'd stand there and I'd look at it. And because of the way the land lays and the horizon and the slope and all, you look at that and you go, that's, there's something wrong with this thing. This doesn't work. That's got to be wrong. But you make a mental note. Where's point A? Where's point B? Walk to point A. So you're standing on point A and look to point B and you can see that's a contour line. It works. It really is dead level. Because level is an absolute. Again, these things are plastic. They're about 15 bucks. Uh, I've had a lot of people that saw and go, I can't find those in the United States. You have to buy them from the Permaculture Institute, and they're so expensive because you probably pay in U.S. versus Australian dollars, and the shipping's insane and all. And that's where I got mine, and I got it because, well, I like to support what they're doing. I like to support the work that Lot and Mollison are doing. And uh, I was buying a bunch of DVDs, so the shipping really didn't matter because I was already paying shipping. But... Northern Tool and Equipment, I'm sitting here looking, I'll put a link in today's show notes, there's Johnson Level and Tool, Handsight Level, $14.99, add to cart, um, uh, four of five star rating by people that have bought it, little picture of a guy siding through one with a construction helmet on, uh, you can buy it, I'll put a link in today's show notes, and I think that if you are serious about evaluating sites and slope and understanding contour, that's one of the best 15 bucks you could spend. Of course, I don't make a dime if you buy it, so I'm just telling you my thought. The next thing is an A-frame level, and I think everybody out there that's doing any kind of work on landscape should build an A-frame level just for the experience. In my cost section, uh, I have uh, the price estimate of a free to about 20 bucks in materials, depending on what you build it out of. I think I might have... Oh... Six dollars and change into mine. Uh, I've used a couple pieces of white wood, two by four stud lumber, which sells for like a dollar seventy a piece. So two, uh, two eight foot pieces of those, which I cut off at six foot in length. Uh, I think I had to use another piece to get a cross piece that was long enough because I only had two feet left, uh, when I, when I cut them off at six feet. And I used an old piece of sink piping, uh, like a, like a, what do you call it? A P, a P trap from an old sink, brass P trap because it's heavy, uh, for my, my weight and a piece of tarred line. And let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six nails, six nails. Now, when I've seen A-frame levels built before, I've always seen them like this beautiful piece of carpentry. The, the, the place where the two, and a, an A-frame level, to understand it, if you don't know, uh, put your two hands in front of yourself, like you're going to do two, two karate chops down at a board, somebody's holding it horizontally, you're going to chop it, so you've got your hands up, like you're doing a robot or something like that. Put your fingertips together, 
right? So you're almost like you're praying, but your hands aren't touching. You got an A shape there. Okay, that's that's the main body of the level. And then about halfway down, imagine there's a, a, a cross piece going across from your forearm to your forearm. Uh, that's an A-frame level. And there's a string hanging down from where your fingertips touch together, uh, almost but not quite touching the ground, bisecting the horizontal cross piece. That's an A-frame level. If you're having trouble with that, Google A-frame level, you'll see one. So I always saw these, and I never built one because you got to do these miter joints to get those two pieces coming together at the top, and you want everything measured and, and perfect. And I watched, again, the PDC with Jeff Lawton and Bo Mollison, and he says, we make them out of you know, lashing material and you know, string and, 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 and uh, cut saplings all the time in the third world. They don't have to be perfect. They just have to be calibrated. So when I heard that, I said, okay, I got permission to just do it easy. So I cut two six pieces of wood, pieces of wood. And I overlaid them in that A shape. And I did make sure that, you know, a little bit that was sticking out of the top was the same length. Just measured it. And I just got them to where they're the same length on the top so that they would be the same. And I stuck a nail from, and I, one overlapping the other, just drove a nail in there. One nail. That way I could move my A until I got it the way that I wanted it. Then I cut my cross piece to be a little longer than it needed to be, you know, based on the angles that I wanted. I took a tape measure and I measured up from the bottom. So that the bottom of the cross piece was the same distance from both bottoms, right? So it doesn't matter how far, about halfway. A little bit more, a little bit less won't matter, just so it's the same. And it doesn't even need to be that accurate. I just figured that was easy to do. So then I got it where I wanted it, marked it, and nailed it to a cross. So it made an A. I put two nails in each side, and I went up to the top where it was pivoting, put a second nail in. So it wasn't, as Jeff would call that, wonky. So it was solid. Then I drilled, I put, just put a screw in close to center by eye as I could to where the two boards crossed at the top, tied a string to it, and hung a weight off of it. Now, something like a plumb bob would be perfect, but anything that's heavy, Jeff says they use filled plastic water bottles. Okay? Then I got a piece of wood and a spirit level. Spirit level is a little $5 level that you use like to check the level of a frame you've hung on a wall or a, you know, a board or a deck or anything. A little level. You can use a big level, doesn't matter. A little level. And I put this piece of 2x6 on the ground, and I put the level on it. And it wasn't level, obviously, because it was sitting on my gravel driveway. So I stuck a few pieces of gravel under one side, another the other, and I did it so that the board was level. So the bubble is dead center of the level. Right? I check it a few different places to make sure. Take the A-frame level and set it up on top of the 2x6, And the string is going to hang straight down. And you want to use a weight that's heavy enough that there's a breeze. It doesn't move it around a lot on you. And right where that string bisected the, the, the cross piece, I took a pencil and I made a mark. I flipped it around so that, you know, just turned it around and put it right back on the 2x6. And I made another mark with a pencil. Those marks almost touched. Were, I mean, they were like the width of a pencil lead between the two marks. I took a Sharpie. And right in between those two marks, I made a dark line with a Sharpie so it was easy to see. That's my level line. Now I can take that A-frame level anywhere on my property that I want to. And when it lays out in the rain and the wood warps a little bit and all, you might want to calibrate it again before you use it again. But I put one end of it down, I put another end of it down, and I move the one foot until the line, the, the, the string bisects the line, and those two places are level. And you can use rocks or sticks. I buy those little uh, landscaping flags. Like when people lay out a sprinkler system, you can get a bunch of those for a few bucks. Put a flag in one spot, a flag in the other spot. Now, move your level. Walk it around. 
and go from the spot you just made to the next spot. Put another flag in. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Till you get to where you want to be. Stand and look at your flags. There's your contour line. It's dead level. It's that simple. It's that easy. Yes, I'll, now that I've got my new equipment, I will do a video better explaining it using my A-frame level, how you do it. Uh, but I'm going to explain to you that I'm not going to build another one. I'm going to show you what it looks like, explain why I did it, and I promise you, if you can hammer a nail and use a saw, you can build one of these. And the reason I say it's free to 20 bucks is you can build a really neat one with plywood reinforcements and miter joints and uh, just awesome to you know buy a plumb bob, or you can go out and use some scrap wood, or you can go out and cut some saplings down and get some string and an old bottle and build one. It all works the same. It doesn't have to be perfectly square. I made mine fairly square. But what Jeff explained is one leg can even be longer than the other. Doesn't matter. As long as you calibrate it on a level surface and mark your mark based on that, make your two marks flipping it around and make your mark between the two of them, it's still going to show level as long as it doesn't move. If it moves, your calibration changes. But as long as it's solid... Even if one foot is a foot longer than the other foot, it's still going to show level in the same place. So an A-frame level. Um, a dumpy level is more like what you see surveyors on a highway using. You've got a tripod and you look through it and you, you can line up with a, a stick with a mark on the other end. And if you have it set at 30 inches here and it's the, the, the stick has... 30 inches of height and a distance, and you get to where the little bubble you're looking through where it's dead level at 30 inches is dead level with the stick that your, your partner's holding in the distance, well, your two spots on, on the land are level. When you get into bigger projects, that's kind of your minimum level of equipment is a dumpy level. They're not that expensive. You can get a decent one for about 300 bucks. Um, now, when you deal with earth movers, so you're going to hire a guy to come in with an excavator uh, and a dozer to build dams and, and, and major stuff, a lot of times these guys have this equipment. But you'll save money because you're going to pay them by the hour, and you're going to pay them more money to do that surveying to either rent or own this equipment and mark everything out before your excavator operator gets there. Have it all marked out. Have them come look at it. A couple weeks before they come in and dig, let it be in their head. Then you're going to save money and you're going to get what you want instead of what they think you need. So it's, when you're looking at putting in a dam where we might be spending $8,000 on the project, $300 on a dumpy level uh, is probably a, a smart investment. There's more sophisticated ones that use a laser where as you move the stick, you'll hear beep, 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 and that means you're level. And it makes a different beep whether you're high or low. And the good thing is you can do you can use those alone. So you set up your 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 uh, your laser in the distance where you want one end to be, and then you can walk through and put all your stakes in on your own. And then your operator can come in. Tip from Jeff on working with your excavator operators: um, be willing to pay a little bit more money because these guys are used to making the biggest hole as fast as possible and going away. That's the world they live in. If you explain to them what you're doing and say, do you want to put a little, I want you to put a little creativity in it. I want you to be a little bit artistic with it. I want you to understand if it takes an extra day and it takes me an extra $500 to do this, I'm okay with that. You don't want an excavator operator that's going to abuse that privilege and drag ass. But when they actually understand that you're concerned with doing this job right, level to you means level, not pretty much level. You want things to look good. You want them to feel free to use the skill that they have to, to shape and sculpt 
you get a lot better results out of them. Jeff says that my experience from working in outside plant construction way back in the day would tell you you're probably going to get the same result, even from a guy that's never done work like that before. People that are good on a backhoe, good on an excavator, good on a dozer, they take a lot of pride in what they can do with them, how, how delicate of an operation they can do with a 30-ton machine. And if you give them the freedom to exercise that skill, they'll do it for you with a lot of pride. The last thing is kind of a laser level. I'm not talking about the laser level I just talked about, but basically a device that sits level at one place projects a laser, and you go look at the dot and go, okay, that's where the level is on the other side. And the thing I talked about does that. I want to talk about, this is, this is something I haven't built one yet, but I see no reason it wouldn't work, is a low-cost sanity check tool. If you've got a spirit level, a little four-inch spirit level, And you got a laser pointer, you know, like ones you would use in a presentation. You would point out a chalkboard and say here and here and here, or you play with your cat and make the cat go crazy chasing it. Every time she thinks she's about to get it, you let go of the thing and it disappears, or you make it look like it disappears underneath the couch and comes out the other side. One of those, you know, a thing that you annoy people with, you shouldn't because you could blind them. That little tool, little laser that runs on some batteries that are like uh, watch batteries. If you got a spirit level and you put it on a dead level surface. And you got a little line level. Now, line level is I put a string from one point to another, and I make it taunt, and then I put that line level, and it just hooks on the string, right? And I put that line level there, and then that I know that string's level. So that's another leveling tool we could use in the landscape with some creativity. The reason I want it, though, is it's tiny, right? It'll fit on top of my laser. So if I take my spirit level and I put it on a dead level surface, and I make sure it's level by looking at the bubble, And then I put some epoxy on my little laser, uh, something like PC7, something like a putty that takes a, that will hold instantly but takes a while to set so I can move it. And I epoxy that laser to the bottom edge of the level, and I get my, my, my line level and I use it to make sure that my, and you probably need two sets of hands to do this, but I make sure that my laser is level as it's adhered to the level, if that makes sense. And I let that dry, and then I check it to make sure it's dead. Because level, if it's a little bit off, right? And this is not something to build a dam with. This is something to gain some perspective with. This is a surveying tool that we can build for about $15. bucks, four dollars for the level, $10 for the laser, a dollar for the epoxy. If both of those are level, and I take that level somewhere, and I make it level, and I push the button, wherever that laser points to is level with the point of the level. Isn't that cool? Now, again, if you're going to build uh, a half mile of swale, if you're going to build uh, a 10,000 you know, megaliter dam, if you're going to do any of these major earthworks, you want to rent professional equipment. But to me, and I'm going to build one of these little laser levels to see how practical it is, because this is an idea in my head right now. Okay, I want to be clear about that. This is out of all these things that is the one thing I have zero practical experience. But to me, using the handheld site level and the little, you know, uh, jerry rigged, redneck engineered, uh, laser level, we should be able to do a lot, especially with small dams, like we might build in a backyard. I'm talking something the size of a room or smaller, uh, and you're checking like freeboard where you have a little bit of room. Freeboard is when the dam is totally full, how much space there is on the dam uh, going off the other side. Or, I'm sorry, the freeboard is more accurately, um, wife just got to the office and, and disrupted me, but if, I'm, if the dam is full, how much of the dam still sticks above? 
So if I'm on the, the, the level side of where the water's going to backfill to with that little level uh, tool that I just talked about and push a button and it hits the dam before the dam's full, that's about where the water level should be. And the part of the dam above that is my freeboard. And, you know, in, in a little, you know, I don't know, thousand gallon pond in your backyard, you might need a few inches. In a big dam like a tenth acre or more, you know, you probably want a meter of freeboard. You probably want about three feet there. Uh, of safety net so because if the, if the water goes over a dam like that it's over and you can't just put it back together because the material's gone it's blown out it's gone down grade um, it, it, losing a big dam like that the dam may be gone forever there may be no way to fix it so as you get into bigger projects my little you know uh, my little tools like your handheld sight level my little jerry rig laser level uh, A-frame levels get into professional grade equipment with that either lease it or hire someone to come in and do the work for you and you know maybe get a good consultant to, to work with you on the project but Hopefully now you have a new understanding of water and water in the landscape. And hopefully I've given you ideas that can be used in a backyard in suburbia or used on, you know, that 40 acres of dream property that you have out there uh, somewhere for that big bug out location or that family farm. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up.